Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, as we open your word, as we look at the life here of Samson, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Open our eyes to behold the truth. Open our eyes especially to behold you and to see you as better than anything we've been trying to hold on to, any idols, any sins, that you would display yourself better and that the the hands of our hearts would let go of whatever word carried in here and reach forward to take hold of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so guys, we're, in, uh, we're looking at the life of Samson. We're in a series called Old Testament Family Reun- Reunion. And uh, we're looking at the life of Samson. That You'll find that in Judges 13 through 16. How many of you guys have read the book of Judges before? Uplifting? Mostly not uplifting, right? You can pretty much get the idea of what's going on in the book of Judges from the first verse in our chapter here, chapter 13. It says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them over to the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That's pretty typical of what you'll find in the book of Judges. It's a, it's a grisly, dark book. A couple places in the book of Judges, it says that it was a time when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's basically, if you wanted to summarize what the book of Judges is about, it's about a time when there was no king and everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. And, um, and, and similar to a time like today, right? You know, you see, you know, the memes on social media or whatever, follow your heart, you know, find what you love best and be it, you know, follow your own heart, follow your own desires, do whatever's right in your own eyes. And that's what people were doing there in this time and with pretty devastating consequences. I mean, this is a book that, you know, it would be an interesting children's book to read to people and stuff like to read to kids. Um, you, you think of the story of Jephthah, who was one of the judges. And uh, he asked the Lord to help him in, in battle. And he said to him, Lord, if you'll help me, then I will sacrifice the next thing that comes through my doorway. I don't know what he thought was going to come through his doorway. It was his daughter. And so what does he do? He, he, he goes, well, you know, I've got to keep my promise. I promise God. It's like these people didn't look in the book. They didn't see what God's law said. They did whatever was right in their own eyes with disastrous consequences. And I could go on and on. Um, I think you should read it yourself. But what is all this grisly stuff about? You know, what is the, the, the intention of the book of Judges? And I think it comes from that verse that says that it was a time when there was no king. The book of Judges shows us the need for a king. God's people needed a king. And Judges shows that shows that somebody needed to rule over these people. They were kind of a loose federation. There was no central power. And so the book of Judges, they they were supposed to have a long, and it's like, we need a king. And then you get into the next book, Samuel and the Kings and Chronicles, and what do you find there? We need a different king, right? It's like, we need a king, and it's like, not like that one. And so you can see what God's doing through the flow of redemptive history is he's saying, you need a king. These are not the kings you need. There's a king coming that you need. And so the book is really set up to, to show us our need for Christ. And you can see in the book of Judges, there's these cycles. First, there's relapse. They relapse into sin or idolatry, right? And then they get rebuked, tough love through the Philistines or someone else. And then they repent, kind of. And then what happens? They get rescued. And then what? They relapse. So it's over and over and over again. So it's, it's relapse, rebuke, repentance, rescue, relapse, over and over again, right? Sound familiar? That sounds like the history of Israel in general, right? It also sound, can sound a lot like our history as well. You know, this continuous cycle of returning to sin and being foolish, getting disciplined. And so God's disciplining his people here for 40 years with the Philistines 
occupying him. And when he rescues him, he rescues him through judges. And I think for us, we think judges, we think like Judge Judy or something. It's not Judge Judy. These are warriors, okay? Warrior judges that would come and rescue God's people. And there's famous ones and there's less famous ones. Famous ones like Deborah and Gideon. Deborah was probably the best one there. Um, There's a general flow from good judges to bad judges. So by the end, they're getting worse and worse and Samson's at the end. So you can kind of get a sense for what he's going to be like. When God sends Samson, God sends a savior to his people that basically mirrors them. He's a man of idolatry. He's a man that himself needs to be rebuked by God and brought to repentance. And himself needs to be rescued. And so we see in Judges 13 that the angel of the Lord comes to this childless couple in the midst of them being um, overtaken by the Philistines. It's Manoah and his wife, and and they're infertile. And if you take a look at Judges 13.3, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or a strong drink. Eat nothing unclean, for behold... You shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Um, this, this practice of being a Nazarite is something in number six, and it was extra consecration. So they would give up things that it's okay to do. For example, it's okay to drink wine. They gave up wine. It's more than okay to cut your hair. And they gave up cutting their hair. And it was something where they would consecrate and be specially set apart before God. And there's a real irony here that this consecrated man acts the way he does when we get to that. But God is, it says in there that he will be a Nazarite in verse 7 until his death. So God chooses Samson to be a Nazarite. And it's not based on, Samson's position with God is not based on his performance, but God's promise. And that becomes significant later. And as Samson grows, his strength becomes evident. If you look at Judges 14.5, he tears a lion with his bare hands. It says in Judges 14.5, And behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Tears it with his bare hands. We're talking, these are these Asiatic lions. They don't live there anymore, but they did before. And hundreds of, pound, hundreds of pounds, this creature jumps on him. He tears it with his bare hands. And I love how it says it. You know, like the way you tear a young goat. We're all like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, like, when's the last time you tore a young goat? I haven't. I feel, feel like it's like a hot knife through butter or some sort of expression. But that he tore it just like you might tear a young goat. Next thing he does is he, he strikes down 30 guys. Look at Judges 14, 19. It says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and he struck down 30 men of the town. And if that isn't enough to show his power, his strength, in Judges 15, 15, it says he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and struck down a thousand men. With a jawbone of a donkey, and I don't know if you guys are thinking about the size of a jawbone of a donkey, but it's not that big. We're talking like it's about this big. Okay, so it's this little, I mean, a baseball bat would be better, right? You know, this isn't like the jawbone of a, you know, a blue whale or something. Like, this is a, a little jawbone, and he beats, he beats all these people. He, he strikes down a thousand men with this thing that doesn't really probably do much for him. And then it's funny because he writes a little poem about himself. He's not vain or anything, but in verse 16, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. He writes a little poem about himself, you know? Kind of imagine him as being kind of a Gaston character, you know? He's like, hey, check me out, you know? Look at what I did. Another great example of his power is in Judges 16. Judges 16, 3, he's inside this, one of the capital cities of the Philistines, and he needs to get out, and it says in verse 3, that he arose and took hold of the doors of the gates of the city, with its two posts, pulled them up, bars and all, 
put them on his shoulders and carry them away to the top of a hill that is in front of Hebron. So back in that day, a city, the walls were very important, as when you talked about Nehemiah, the walls are very important, and the gate's really important. That's going to be the most vulnerable spot. And so capital city like this has very ornate, powerful gates, right? And so he completely humbles them by taking their place of security, grabs it, throws it over his shoulders, and then he walks 30 miles to the highest city he could find and drops it off there. It would have been hilarious to watch, you know? You're just like, what's he doing? He pulls it up, throws it on his shoulder, and just walks away. Where'd the gates go? Samson walked them away on his shoulders, you know? And um, so Samson is an extraordinarily strong man, okay? Very strong man. And it would be very easy because of this strength to think of him as a mythical character. I was talking to somebody this week, and they're like, kind of sounds kind of mythical the way he's described. And he can sound that way to us. He's a mythical character, like a Hebrew Hercules, right? Or like a modern-day Avenger, right? He's the Hulk, right? That he's some sort of, you know, magical person, right? But guys, you got to remember that Samson is actually an ordinary man empowered by an extraordinary God. Samson's actually an ordinary man empowered by an extraordinary God. These powers don't reside, for example, like in his hair, Okay? It isn't that his hair gives him power. It isn't anything in himself that gives him power. It isn't his muscles that give him power. He's always drawn with muscles, right? Wouldn't it be fun? It doesn't say he was muscular. It doesn't say he's buff. Wouldn't it be fun if he was like this little skinny guy? And then the guy would come upon him and he would just do all these things? Could be. We don't know that he was muscular. You know, it isn't that Samson is like a kind of supernatural being or something mythical person, like, you know, a man that was bit by a bear and got the powers of a bear. He's bear man. You know, he's not that kind of a thing. He is an ordinary man that gets empowered by God occasionally to do powerful things. And that's what we see every time he does a feat of strength. What does it say? Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he did this, right? It's not that then his hair empowered him, right? Or, or then his muscles, you know, did this. It's the Spirit of the Lord empowered him. Not cutting his hair was a form of consecration. It was a form of him being set aside for God. And if he broke that, then he would lose God's power. But it's God's power all the time. I think that's really important for you to realize, that every time he was empowered, it was God's power. He's not a supernatural person like Hercules or the Hulk. He's a normal person that at times is given supernatural power. It's not his hair, it's the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say it's not his hair, it's the Holy Spirit, for some of you guys, you might really struggle with the idea of the Holy Spirit empowering people to, like, kill a thousand Philistines. Because in our modern idea of the Holy Spirit, especially American Christians and evangelicals, they basically think of the Holy Spirit that he's a force and that his job is to kind of give you good feelings and goosebumps in worship or give you a sense of peace when you're making hard decisions. That's what the Holy Spirit's pretty much reduced to, that he's a force that's just to give you kind of, you know, spiritual goosebumps in worship and give you kind of peace when you're struggling and things like that. That he's some sort of like a, he's like a spiritual anesthesiologist that injects you with good feelings. Like, that's his job. Oh, I need the good feeling guy to come, you know, and inject me. Guys, the Holy Spirit is God. And so the Holy Spirit, because he's God, he's not safe. God is not safe. I think that's one thing that we have really fallen into in our culture is a sense that God is safe and he's here to meet our needs and he's here to be therapeutic for us, right? You guys have heard of the idea of uh, moral therapeutic deism, this idea that God is, it has kind of retreated from this world. He's not very active in this world except to kind of meet our felt needs and to be therapeutic to us and make sure that we're good people. Guys, the Holy Spirit is God and God is not safe. Hebrews uh, 12, which 
Chad read, verse 29 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Guys, God is dangerous. He's a terror to his enemies. The, the Holy Spirit who empowered Samson to slaughter his enemies is the same Holy Spirit who fills us right now. Not to do that, but just realize that God is not to be messed with. So Samson is incredibly strong. Um, but I'm afraid we have this like kind of Sunday school version of Samson, don't we? You know, most of you guys, when you were kids, maybe you had a children's book or something like that that taught you about Samson, and all you really learned about was his strength, and he was a hero, and, you know, be like Samson. Be strong for God like Samson. Um, that is a huge misrepresentation of this story. So Samson's very strong, but Samson is also incredibly weak. He's strong on the outside, but he is super weak where it matters most on the inside. Samson was extremely weak against his appetites. Look at Judges 14.8. It says, after some days, Samson turned aside to the carcass of the lion, this lion that he ripped to pieces. He turns aside to the carcass of the lion, and it decomposed and stuff. And I imagine kind of like in its rib cage or something. There was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he's like, ooh. And he scrapes it out with his hands. And he went on eating it. And he gave it to his father and mother. And they didn't know where it had come from. And uh, he didn't tell them. Here he's already beginning to break his vows. He's becoming unclean with this carcass. And he's real hardened about it because he gives it to his parents too. You know, it's, we all know that's unclean, right? You guys wouldn't eat honey out of a, a carcass. You know, this is pretty obvious uh, defilement that he's doing. And he's involving his parents in it too because like the people of the days of Judges, he does whatever's right in his own eyes. He does whatever he feels like doing at the moment. Um, Samson was also famously weak with women. There's three female relationships he has in here, uh, romantic relationships. They're all sinful. First one is a Philistine wife that he wasn't supposed to marry, Judges 14.1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Notice he saw her. And then he came to his mother and father, and he said, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me to be my wife. And his mother and father said to him, it is, is there not a woman of the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, she's right in my eyes. Now, we might misunderstand that and think this is like a racial thing. They don't, you know, mix races or things. That's not what it is. It's a religious thing. The Philistines were idolaters. God's people have always been told to only marry those who also love the Lord. And, but what does Samson say? Very important. He says, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. He does everything that's just right in his own eyes. He's weak. And that's the theme of Judges, right? And so in Judges, God is sending a Savior to them that looks just like them. Looks just like them. Weak for idols. Samson ends up losing this wife because of his third weakness, which was anger. In chapter 14, Samson has this idea. He has this party. A whole bunch of people come. And he has this idea like he's going to tell them a riddle. They can figure out the riddle, then he's going to give them all these clothes and stuff like that, very expensive. And if they uh, can't get the riddle, then they owe him, right? And he gives them this riddle, and the riddle's about the, the lion and the, and, and the honey and all that, which shows kind of he's hard, pretty hardened about his sin because he's like making it a, a party game now, right? And he tells them this. He goes, figure out this riddle. And this is kind of fixed. There's no way they can get this. This is kind of cheating. He says, um, they say, put your riddle out. And he says, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. This is a riddle they have to figure out. And, uh, and they try and figure it out. And they, they don't realize what it is. How could they? And so they end, up, they, they end up going through his wife and finding out from his wife what it is. And then at the end of this kind of contest, they come back and they say, what is sweeter than honey? And what's stronger than a lion? And Samson's enraged. 
by this. He's enraged, and he says this. He says, if you had not been plowing with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Pretty sure it's not cool to call your wife a heifer. I saw some eyes go up. They were like, whoa, yeah, not okay, right? Maybe that's cultural. Don't think so. And then in Judges 14, 19, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ascalon, and he, and he struck down 30 men. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Don't miss this, guys. It, Samson just murdered 30 guys because they cheated at a party game. Okay? This, is, this guy's out of control, right? This guy's got strength, but he's weak on the inside. And, um, and it ended up costing him his wife. Because what happened is the dad goes, Well, I guess he's, he doesn't want this wife. You know, I'm going to remarry her to someone else. He comes down to, to, to see her again once he cools off, finds out she's been remarried to someone else. In retaliation, look at Judges 15.4. Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put torches between their tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go in the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacks of grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchard. Um, guys, I'm pretty sure this isn't cool to do. I mean, this is, this is animal cruelty. I know I'm a veterinarian, so I'm a little biased on this, but um, pretty sure it's not okay to light animals on fire, right? Um, but it's also pretty impressive, you know, when you think about it. I mean, I don't know where this guy got 30 foxes, I, 300 foxes, sorry. It's not like there's a fox dealer in town. He's catching all these foxes. It's like very elaborate, you know, very premeditated. Catches all these foxes, and they're probably biting like crazy. I had ferrets growing up. They're illegal in California. But uh, I had ferrets, and when they had babies, they were, like, violent. Like, you put your hand in there, and there'd be, like, a dozen of them biting you. I figured the foxes are like that, too, trying to round up these foxes. And then, and then he's trying to, like, attach their tails together. It's a really weird deal he's doing here. It's like, goes off to Hobby Lobby, gets a hot glue gun. He's like, putting their tails together. They're trying to bite him the whole time, puts torches on, lights him. And then synchronize. I don't know if he had help or whatever. You send all these foxes in. And then they run around like crazy because they're on fire and burn up their grain and stuff like that. This is a crazy guy. And in retaliation, the Philistines end up burning Samson's wife and her dad. You see that in verse 6 of chapter 15. His anger causes this retaliation cycle that leads in him losing his own wife. So he's weak in his appetites. He's weak with women. He's weak with his anger. Um, and this isn't the end of him being weak with women. Take a look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza... And there he saw a prostitute. Once again, his eyes saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And you guys got to be at this point like, whoa, time out, Eric. I thought this was like the Old Testament family reunion series. And you start to think like, does he show up? Like, is this guy a believer? I thought this was a series on believers in the Old Testament. You guys starting to think that? I mean, he's so far from what you thought of a Sunday school version that you start to go like, this guy doesn't even seem like a believer. And, you know, you could make a case for that. Because just because the Holy Spirit comes upon him and empowers him to do things doesn't mean he's a believer. Who else did that happen to in the Old Testament? Saul, right? Holy Spirit would come upon him, and he seemed completely lost, right? Why would I put him in this series? I put him in this series because Hebrews 11 mentions him. Hebrews 11 mentions him in a series of people of faith. He's, he's listed in a series of people of faith. And, and all I can say is sometimes you go to your family reunion, and there's a crazy aunt or uncle, and they show up, and they're family. And that's what we got here. The other thing I'd say to you is, is that at least we know by the end of his life, he had true repentance and faith. And I think we're going to see that at the end of the story. Um, we're not seeing it right here, right? And you guys got to realize that these examples of moral failure are happening at the same time as his professional successes. 
For example, in the beginning of uh, chapter 16 here, this whole thing with the prostitute, right after the gate thing happens. So everybody's kind of like applauding the guy along as he's doing all these great things, you know, to humble the Philistines. But his personal life is a disaster, right? He, he, he looks great on social media, but, but his whole life is falling apart inside. He's a weak man. Next one was Delilah, right? Look at verse 4 of chapter 16. And, and then he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. You guys know what Delilah's name means? Flirtatious. You know, I assume her dad did not name her Flirtatious, right? I assume this is like a nickname or something like that. But her name is Flirtatious, and Delilah is not his wife. And he was married once to a Philistine woman. Then there was a prostitute. Now there's the girlfriend, okay? And uh, this is not a wholesome dating situation. And it's in Samson's relationship with Delilah that we see his great weakness. Look at verse uh, 5 of chapter 16. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will give you each 1,100 pieces of silver. So she's offered money to betray her boyfriend, Samson. And look at verse 6. This is how dumb Samson is. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one could subdue you. There's not like really high-level deception going on here. You know, like this is pretty much like, how could I bind you and turn you into your enemies? He's not a smart man. And sin does that to us, right? At first, Samson lies to her and he says in verse 7, well, bind me with fresh bowstrings. And, and, and she does assume it's while she, he's asleep. And then she's like, Philistines are coming, Philistines are coming. They pop out and then he breaks them, right? Then, then she begs him again. He says, well, try ropes. You know, these new ropes, you put them around me. And, and she does that while he's sleeping. He wakes up, Philistines pop out. There's a pattern here, right? And then in verse 13, well, you know, weave my hair into this kind of web and put a pin in it and that'll do it. And what happens? Philistines pop out, right? And he breaks free. And then she lays it on thick. Look at verse 15. And then Delilah said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. And you have not told me where your great strength lies. And listen to this. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, listen to this, his soul was vexed to death. Samson. (laughs) Oh, Samson. You are the weakest strong man ever right? He's the weakest strong man ever. You know, his friends are like, bro, she's out to kill you, right? And not figuratively. She's poison. She wants you dead, right? And what does he say? He goes, oh, I know, but I love her. And she's crying. And she says, like, how can I love her and lie to her? And she's kind of right. I feel so bad. It's like, Samson, what's your problem? Have you guys ever had friends like that? You know, you meet their latest love interest, and you know immediately, like, this is a bad deal. And you tell them, and they're like, I know. She means well. And it's like, no, she doesn't mean well. She's never meant well. Or, you know, I think I can change him. I see signs of hope. Right? Samson makes terrible romantic decisions over and over again. And what's at stake here, guys, is not just that he would reveal his secret, right? He was never told he couldn't do that. He was never told, like, never reveal to anyone, you know, the secret of your power. He was never told that, right? What's really at stake here is who does Samson really love? Who is Samson really consecrated to? Does he, does he really love and consecrate to Delilah or the Lord? Will it be God or his sin? Because, guys, we always serve what we love most. We always serve what we love most. 
Whatever we love and serve is our true God. It's either the Lord or our sin. And that was the whole problem with Israel during this time, right? He's a mirror of it. They loved and they served idols. And that's our problem today, guys. Our sin, like Delilah, makes us stupid. You guys testify that? Our sin makes us stupid. Can you remember the things you thought, oh yeah, you know, I know it's wrong, but this or that. Or, you know, I know other people shouldn't do it, but I have special circumstances. Or things like that, right? Our sin, like Delilah, makes us stupid. Our sin, like Delilah, calls us to betray God. Make no mistake about it. Living in sin is betraying God. It's personal. It's not just like, a lot of times we think of God's laws, it's just his law. It's kind of like when you get pulled over by the CHP and you're speeding, you know, the, the CHP officer doesn't come up and go like, how could you do this to me? Right? It's like, no, it's very impersonal. This is the law. Here's your ticket, right? I don't expect you to, you know, say you're sorry to me or anything like that. I'm just going to write you a ticket, right? But with, when you break God's law, you break his heart. When you break God's law, you're betraying him. And so our sin, like Delilah, calls us to betray God. And like, uh, and Deli- like Delilah, our sin is out to kill us, okay? She's out to kill him. Your sin is out to kill you. Your sin is out to kill your family. Your sin is out to kill your testimony. Your sin is out to kill you, just like Delilah. And so what's your Delilah? What are you loving and serving right now instead of the Lord? Is it some sort of sinful relationship like his? that You have all kinds of justifications for why this is a good idea and stuff, and you're just like Samson. Or is it some sort of substance that you use? I mean, it's the way you use alcohol. I'm not saying that drinking alcohol is wrong, but being drunk is wrong. Using it as a way to medicate is wrong. Is it the way you use food? Is it the way you shop? Is it, is it a prescription thing that you've gotten hooked on? What is it that's that thing, that Delilah, that thing that you kind of justify in your head? Maybe it's a grudge you nurse. Don't you love that, nursing a grudge? Right? This book Gilead I read said, I love that phrase, nursing a grudge, because our grudges are the nearest thing to our hearts. Don't want to let go of it. Do you have a grudge against your kids? Do you have a grudge against your parents? Do you have a grudge against your spouse? Maybe you have a grudge against some old friend that you nurse. Is that your Delilah? You know, is it the opinions of others? Will you kind of do any compromise just to make other people happy? That's what he's doing here. Um, is, is it something with money? Is it a sinful practice at work or something that you just feel like you can't live without? It's your Delilah. If you're flirting with some sort of sin, know that your sin, like Delilah, is making you stupid. And I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm saying it's making you stupid. Makes me stupid too, okay? We're all stupid when sin is flirting with us. And like Delilah, it calls us to betray God, and like Delilah, it's out to kill you. Now, now, God won't let his people stay enslaved in sin. That's one of the beautiful things in the book of Judges. It's a grisly book, but it's got a beautiful theme. God doesn't leave Samson enslaved either. God rescues Samson from his idols, but he's going to do it in a real severe way. And God does that, doesn't he? Sometimes he has to use very severe mercies. That's a theme in the book of Judges, is that God disciplines his people to free them from idolatry. And it's always out of love, and, it, and he frees us always. He uses only as much force as necessary. And, and that gives you some idea of, of the hardness of Samson's heart. This is going to be how much force is necessary for him. I almost imagine God this way. Is he's got this kind of leather roll. You know how he does leather rolls for tools that you roll out? It's got, he's got a leather roll, and he's got hammers. Got a real big hammer on this side, medium size, all the way down to a little hammer. God never uses a bigger hammer than he needs to to break us free of idolatry, but he will use a hammer. Let's not make him use the big hammer. Okay, I think that's one of the things we can learn from Samson is like, let's be easy for him to lead. Let's repent of our sin. Let's see the foolishness of turn back. Don't make him use the big hammer. Samson, sadly, 
is going to get because he needs the big hammer, okay? Um, and that's what we see in Judges 16:7. Samson hands over his heart to Delilah. I mean, this is about consecration. This is about whose is God, right? And he told her all his heart, and he said, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my, from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become as weak as any other man. And then in Judges 16, 19, she made him sleep at her knees, and she called the man to shave all the seven locks of his hair. And she began to torment him, and his strength left. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. It's interesting here you see Samson presuming upon the power. He presumes. He presumes he can live any way he wants and still have God's power. You can see it there in verse 20. It says, he awoke from his sleep and he says, I will go out as before and I will shake myself free. But what does he end of verse 20 say? He didn't know that the Lord had left him. The Lord's power had left him because he had betrayed the Lord. And then the Philistines have a great time of mocking and humiliating and beating and piercing Samson, right? And using him as entertainment. You see in verse 21, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill and the prison. But then you see something really interesting in the next verse. Look at verse 22. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. I think to myself, like, I feel like the Philistines botched this. You know, I feel like, shouldn't there have been somebody in charge of that? Like, you got this guy who's been, like, terrorizing your people. You finally got him all shackled up after you cut his hair off. There should be somebody in charge of, you know, like keeping that bear, right? Keeping the hair off this guy. Like, you don't let the hair grow back. So the hair is growing back. Why would they let that happen? I think I have a reason for that. It doesn't say. But I think they probably believed the same thing Samson probably believed. God's done with him. Right? He's betrayed the Lord so bad, God will never use him again. I don't think they're worried about him anymore. And I don't think he is thinking that the Lord would have him back. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that you betrayed the Lord so badly that it just doesn't matter anymore? No matter what I do. It's just, it's over, right? You ever feel that way? Samson the Philistines probably assumed that his calling as a Nazarite was over, that God had cut him off forever. But the hair on his head started to grow back. Hair on his head started to grow back. Remember what God had said when he chose Samson in the first place? Verse 7 of chapter 13, he said, the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Isn't that awesome? Samson's position with God doesn't depend on Samson's performance. It depends on God's promise. It depends on God's promise, not his performance. God's not done with him. Um, and it's the same with you. Have you drifted? Have you drifted this week? Have you drifted for this decade? You know? Remember what about Bob? I haven't had a good last decade. You know? Maybe you've drifted from the Lord for a really long time. And what's really cool about this story is that if you repent and return to the Lord, God will bring you back enthusiastically. As remember the, the prodigal son? Remember that, that father, that ancient Near East father, pulling up his, his robe and just running after his boy when he saw him coming in the distance? God is like that. He's enthusiastic to have you back. And maybe some things have been happening in your life just this week where you started like going, you know what, maybe I could read the Bible, or maybe I, maybe I could just listen to some, some Christian radio, or maybe I could do some little thing to kind of just test out. You know what's happening? Your hair is growing back. Your hair is growing back. It's time to return. God will have you back enthusiastically. Samson seems to believe it too. Look at chapter 16, verse 26. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars 
on which this house rests. Let me lean against him. And the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were 3,000 men and women looking on while Samson entertained. Now, he's not doing parlor tricks or something. I think they're beating him up and doing things for fun with him. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. I love that. (laughs) It doesn't sound like the most heartwarming prayer of repentance. Avenge my two eyes. You know what I mean? Like, it's a little grisly. It fits the book of Judges really well. But notice what he's doing here. Notice what he is saying. This isn't a polished prayer. God doesn't require a polished prayer. Look at how he's turning to the Lord. Look at verse 28. He says, Oh, Lord God. If your, your word there, God, should be in all caps if it, your Bible does this kind of thing. And what it means, that word is Yahweh. That is God's covenant name. That's God's promise-keeping name. What he's doing is he's calling upon the God of promise. He's saying, like, I have not performed well. But you, O oh God, are a covenant-keeping God. And he says, O oh God. He says, please remember me. Please strengthen me this one last time. Samson is realizing that he is weak and God is strong. He's realizing that God is the only Savior here. And Samson knows that only God can save him. And he knows that it's only going to be by grace. It's only going to be by keeping his covenant promise. And look at verse 29. Then Samson grasped the two pillars that the house rested on, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed all his strength, and the house fell down on the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. Then he, his brothers and his family brought him down and took him and brought him up and buried him in Zorah and Ashtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. God rescued his people from their enemies through the death of Samson. But we got to realize it's a partial rescue, right? We know the rest of the story. It's a partial rescue because they're going to have enemies again, because they're going to be idolaters again. Right? They're going to sin, be idolaters again. God's going to send more enemies. It's a vicious cycle, right? But he saved them at least for this time. But what's really cool is that God had planned another savior, a better one, right? God had planned another savior, a better one. In fact, God was already kind of threading the family line of the true savior king, even in the time of judges. Do you know through whom? Ruth and Boaz. You look at the the next book um, in Ruth, and that's during the time of the judges. And what God's doing is he's threading a line that's going to go down to the true savior king who will rescue his people. And first that king is David, and then a thousand years later, that ultimate king savior is Jesus. Jesus is the better Samson, the true strong man who was sent to rescue his people. Like Samson, Jesus Christ won his greatest victory over our enemies through his death right? Just like Samson did, right? Except our enemies were way worse than Philistines. Our enemies were sin, death, and hell. Those are what we had arrayed against us, sin, death, and hell. Those are the enemies he beat for us. And just like Israel, our enemies were our own doing, right? This sin that we're trapped in, this death that we're uh, headed towards, and this hell that's ours is from our own doing, just like the Israelites. It was sin, and their enemies would come upon him. Like Samson, Jesus was betrayed for money, by one that he loved. Like Samson, Jesus won the victory over our enemies through his own voluntary death. They were both voluntary deaths. Like Samson, Jesus faced our enemies unarmed. He went into the corporate headquarters of evil unarmed to rescue us. Like Samson, Jesus was mocked. He was humiliated. He was used for entertainment. He was beaten and pierced. Like Samson, just when you thought that evil had won, 
Jesus brought down all of his enemies to destruction. Sin, death, and hell. And the cool thing is, guys, it's like Sam said, he did it just with his bare hands. He did it just with his arms. Not his arms pushing out on pillars, but his arms pulling himself up and down on a cross. In Jesus, we have a Savior that's stronger than Samson. Samson was, came as internal weakness wrapped in strength. Jesus came as internal strength wrapped in weakness. In Jesus, we have a greater rescue. Um, Samson rescued God's people just for a time from external enemies. Jesus rescues us from both our external and our internal enemies. We're our own worst enemies, right? Like Samson. There's internal enemies that we needed to be rescued from. Samson couldn't free his people from the enemies within. He couldn't free him from the things they loved more than God. He couldn't free himself from the things he loved more than God. But Jesus gives a greater rescue because unlike Samson, Jesus arose from the rubble. Right? He didn't stay dead. He came back from the dead, and he took his throne, and he reigns forever. Jesus is the king that the book of Judges says we all need. We all need a king that just doesn't rule us externally, but will rule us from within. And from his throne, Jesus sends forth his spirit to free us from the idols and the sin within us. He frees us from the internal enemies, our worst enemies. The spirit frees us from our misplaced loves that cause us to love and serve something other than the king. And you might ask yourself, well, I trust in Jesus, and I believe that sin and death and hell have been conquered for me in Christ. But I'm struggling with the internal part. I don't feel like I'm being freed from idolatry and from sin inside, from, from my desires. I don't feel like my loves are being changed. How do I get more free in that area? And, and the main way you do that, guys, is by looking at the king. There's a whole theme in the book of Judges of eyes. The beginning of our thing was they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes, Right? They saw this and wanted it, right? And then ultimately, what happens to Samson? His eyes are gouged out. There's a, there's a theme of eyes here. The way to have your loves changed, you serve what you love. The way to have your loves altered is by what you look at, right? It's what you see. If you want to change what you love, you have to change what you're looking at. And if you want to love Christ, not your sin, you need to look at him. You need to look at him, okay? Because people are like, I don't know, how do I change? You look at him. You need to look at him in the Old Testament. That's why we're doing this. Read the Old Testament, you need to look at Jesus. When you read the New Testament, you need to look at Jesus. You need to spend your days finding ways to look at Jesus as much as you can. You want to look at his works. You want to look at his character. You want to look at the beauty of what kind of person he is. I want to just ask you this right now and ask yourself this very honestly. How much of your day do you spend looking at Jesus? How many minutes? How many hours? You spend looking at Jesus. Isn't that interesting? We have a very simple solution to this. We need to look at Jesus. 2 Corinthians says that if we look upon him, we're transformed by him. So look at him. Because we need two things to be rescued by Jesus. And the two things are these. We need repentance and we need faith. Those are the two things you need. Those are the two things you need to get saved. Those are the two things you need to get changed. The repentance of faith. Repentance is, I, my, my heart, it's like it has a hand. It has one hand, okay, on my heart. And it's holding this sin and it's loving this sin. Repentance is the hand of my heart letting it go. Saying, I don't love that anymore. And faith is that hand grabbing hold of Jesus. Do you see why you can't have one without the other? There just isn't this, I believe in him, but I don't repent. There are two sides of one coin. You only have one hand in your heart, right? And so um, what, we, what you're called to do, what we need to do is look at Jesus until you feel the hand of your heart letting go of your sin and wanting to grab hold of him. That's the way it works, faith and repentance. And as we take the Lord's Supper um, this morning...
It's about taking hold of Christ. It's about taking your hand, picking up that bread, picking up that cup. The bread symbolizes his body broken for you. The cup symbolizes his blood that washes away all your sin. This was the thing that Samson, all he had to hope in was this. Same thing we do. If you haven't repented of your sin and taken hold of Jesus, please don't take hold of these symbols. It doesn't make sense for you to do so. But take hold of him. You can do that right now. There's no, and when I talked about Jesus just now, there's no way that you didn't find that attractive. Jesus is the most attractive being in, in the universe. There, there's no sin. There's no, thing, there's no thing in your life that's better than what I just told you. You don't have anything better going on. I don't either, right? He's the best. Take hold of him. Repent of your sin and trust in him. And, and at the Lord's Supper, we come empty-handed. We come empty-handed in two ways. It's a great time to drop your idols, okay? We all walk in here, our heart's got something that it's like, oh, i got to have this. and make you miserable too, right? It's a source of your anxiety. It's a source of your anger. It's a source of your covetousness. It's a source of all things that make you miserable, right? So communion is a great time to go like, I am done with this, and let go of it and take hold of Christ. And so we come with empty hands for our idols. We also, though, guys, come empty-handed of our own righteousness. Because you could hear Samson's life and think, I'm doing good. Right? You could, you could hear Samson's life and go like, I'm doing pretty good. I did some jacked up things, but wow, this guy's bad. Right? But guys, you have no righteousness before God. All we bring to the table is need. You are as weak and as sinful as poor Samson. And yet God delights to have you back. He delights to take you back again. In the Lord's Supper, we feed and strengthen again on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the beautiful story that you've written. First of all, as we think through your word, that it's not just random things sewn together, but you're telling a story through real people and real events. Lord, we thank you that we can read something like the book of Judges and and have it be a mirror to us of our own sin, but also to have it be a place that shows us that you are a God who rescues people that are at their worst. And Lord, we all need that. And we pray, Lord, this morning that we would, as we worship, delight in your presence, that we would see you as better, and that our hearts would let go of anything else that we desire above you. There is nothing in this world that we desire above you. You are the joy of our hearts. These other things we messed around with are garbage. They're poison. They're foolish. They're killing us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace today to let go. And then that you would give us the joy of people who have found the reason they were created that you give us the joy of being the kind of people that have been fully forgiven, fully welcomed, adopted as your kids. You've given our life purpose. You've allowed us to be a part of your kingdom. You've allowed us to enjoy the promises. I thank you for all this. We pray, give us hearts that worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.